Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. 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 Hey, we are the Equity Young Members Committee, and this is the Young Members Podcast. Welcome. Each episode, we're going to be talking about something different. Something different. Something different. We'll talk about something different. To do with our union, our industry, and all the people in it. Made by equity members. For equity members. Happy listening. Hello, I'm Ruby Ablett, and I'm a member of Equity's Young Members Committee. And I'm Francis Metz. I'm also a member of Equity's Young Members Committee. Today's podcast is all about making your own work. That's the phrase that we use a lot in our industry, and it's a really positive thing, something that artists of all kinds are drawn to do and encouraged to do. Creating your own work means making opportunities for yourself, and that might be writing a one-person show or putting on a scratch night or collaborating with your friends on something. We want to talk about this because at the moment, with coronavirus going on, opportunities in our industry are very limited, and what this has meant is that a lot of of artists are coming together to create their own work for the first time and create opportunities for themselves. Zoom and platforms like it have also really opened the field and made putting on work very accessible and created a practical alternative to working in the room in person. So a lot of artists are using Zoom to produce their own work for the first time. There are lots of workshops aimed at the more creative aspects of making your own work. You can learn from directors about directing and you can learn from writers about writing for example but we feel that there isn't much support available when it comes to finding out what the practicalities are when it actually comes to employing other people now we know that most people want to do the right thing by artists but they sometimes don't know much about things like employment law so today we hope to provide you with some clarity and we're going to be speaking to equity member of staff charlotte bentz who can tell us a bit more about some of the things that you do need to keep in mind when you're making your own work hi charlotte Thank you for having me. That's all right, Charlotte. I think you're the best person to talk to when it comes to all this stuff. The first thing I want to ask you is a massive question. And the question is, what is work? I've had this myself where lots of people have been coming together to do like a rehearsed reading or a read through of something with their friends on Zoom. Everyone knows from the outset that no one's getting paid. Is that okay? Yeah, A lot of the time there's this misconception about equity and I think my role in particular. So my role within the union is I am the low pay, no pay organiser and I do a lot of work on the fringe and I do a lot of stuff for the union on employment rights and tackling exploitation and precarious work and that kind of thing. And I speak to a lot of people who are like, okay, that's fine, but all equity wants to do is stop me from doing my art. And that's not true. What equity wants to do is provide a framework through which your art is possible is done in the best way possible and is professional. And your your kind of initial question of what is work is a really, really big question. Mm. Um, you know, like three tiny words that make a kind of a huge, huge idea. And for me, I think the idea of what is work is even more 
or tricky to answer in this sector because of that kind of relationship that a lot of people have whereby it feels informal, it's not necessarily paid, there aren't necessarily contracts. So on the sort of how to answer the what is work part of your question, I think it's really, really hard to do. But I think the kind of more important place to start rather than what is work is what is your employment status? And we've done a podcast on that before. And there's a whole load of stuff available on the union's website about that kind of thing. And obviously equity officials are there to advise and support on that too. So I would kind of, I would answer your first question with a question of my own, which is what is employment status? But your second question around people wanting to get together to do a rehearsed reading online and everybody knows from the outset that nobody will be getting paid is that okay yeah it is okay if you want to do things with your friends if you want to continue to work on your skills put on something that you care about and you're passionate about and other people share in that passion and want to support you then yeah that's fine you just have to be careful when it comes to the line between asking people to do things for you as a favor because it's an interesting project and it's something that you know, people are interested in or passionate about to when it does cross that line into when it should be a job. And a big part of that is about control and how much control you as the person with the idea exercise over the people who are coming to volunteer for you. So in its purest form, getting together to do a rehearsed reading where you know, nobody is really in charge. You're all deciding things on an equal basis. Um, people can dip in and dip out as they as they want to. It's really short. It's really flexible. Absolutely fine. Crack on. We've seen some brilliant work come out of these rehearsed readings. And we know that a lot of people really value them for the professional experience they give people and the opportunity to read for parts or do different things that they might not otherwise have done. Yeah crack on and obviously with those kind of casual engagements there is a point though where a line is crossed there's kind of a threshold where we are entering the question of okay actually this is a professional engagement are there any kind of alarm bells indicators where not just the people doing it but the people who are in charge or in the controlling role might be able to say actually I think we've crossed that line now from friends having a bit of fun together to actually this is work and this is a professional engagement. I think a good way to consider it is to think about a scenario in which the three of us might be doing something together. So let's say for example that I've decided there's a play that I love And I'd really love to do a reading of it. And I'm passionate about it and I'm excited about it. And I need a couple of friends who are also performers or creative workers to help me stage a rehearsed reading of this production because obviously I can't do all of the parts on my own. As a trade union official, I can't do any of the parts because I have (laughs) the skills to do so. But for the purposes of this exercise, let's assume I have the skills that the people I'm fortunate enough to represent possess. If I get in touch with you, Ruby and Francis, and say, look, I love this play. I'd really like to do a reading of it do you want to help me should we put this on together then that's cool that's you know that's an entirely informal arrangement I'm treating you as equals in the project I don't own the play I have no kind of commercial interest in the play we're not selling tickets we're you know putting it out on zoom or on youtube or whatever for people to watch we're all equal participants in that project then that's fine that that's absolutely fine where the kind of question marks should start coming in for people is when you see things that are And to continue with the example, I've seen this play. I love it. I can't find anybody else that will help me on this. So what I do is I put out casting for people I don't know. And I retain all of the rights to the production. I decide everything that happens. And I'm basically your boss. 
but I'm telling you that it's a fun collaboration because that's a way for me to avoid paying you. And I'm ordering you around and I'm not giving you any say over your interpretation of the character, over what kind of part you might want to read for within the play or the production, what you think about how it should work. And I'm giving you no say at all. That's when alarm bells should start ringing because a fundamental kind of test of your employment status about whether what you're doing is work and you should be regarded as a worker is about the degree of control that the person who's engaged you has over what you do. So when you are a worker, you can be told what happens. You can be told, no, I want you to read the part in this way. You know, this is the way I want you to approach the character. You are going to read this part, not, hey, which one do you fancy? We're all equal and we're all making these decisions. It's about how much kind of power and control that person has over you. There are other factors as well. And again, there's information about that on the equity website. But yeah, I think that's a good indicator. If it is a genuine collaboration, you will have a say over what happens. You will have control over what your part in it looks like. You won't be told, for example, um, we're going to do a rehearsal at this time. You will be involved in deciding when that's going to happen around your own you know, your own other priorities and other stuff that you've got going on. And it won't just be one person being like, actually, no, this is what's going to happen and you have no say. Yeah. And if um, if you are at that point where you're like, actually, yeah, this is a paid job. I need to be an employer now. Obviously, we know that you need to pay people. But what are the other responsibilities or duties that you would have then to those people who are your employees, if you like? So they're not going to be your employees because, again, this goes down to questions around worker status. So performers and stage managers aren't employees. They are workers. And for when you have workers engaged on a project, it's not only things like the national minimum wage, but it's also stuff like health and safety. And before coronavirus, I think a lot of trade union officials would have said the same, which is that it was sometimes a struggle to get people to care about health and safety because it all feels quite boring. But actually, it's of crucial importance. Mm. And, you know, even before a pandemic, the well-being and health and safety of people at work has always mattered. So when you engage people on projects, you do need to be thinking about health and safety. And obviously that's, you know, that's a bit more difficult if everybody's working over Zoom. What are the health and safety implications of doing a Zoom workshop for two hours on a Friday afternoon? You probably don't have to think about it too deeply. But when we can start, you know, being together and working in real life again, health and safety is a serious thing that people need to think about. You also need to think about contracts, And a lot of the time people are like, but hang on, this is like a really small thing. Why do I need to provide a contract? And the reason that you need to do that is because it helps you in the event of any disputes later on. But again, if you are looking to do this kind of thing, if you're an equity member, you can contact us for advice and we can talk you through it because there are those kind of baseline standards around terms and conditions, around health and safety. But there might also be different things related to your individual project that you might want to talk about. And you can always get in touch with us and we'll we'll advise. So if you've never written a contract before, you can go to equity and equity can help you with that. Yeah. The fringe agreement that we have is designed to be used by people that haven't written contracts before because it's the most straightforward contract that the union has. And unlike the other collectively bargained agreements, you know, if we're talking about the West End agreement or the ITC agreement or BBC agreement or whatever, the fringe agreement is a template. So you can look at that template and you can adapt it to the circumstances of your particular production with our permission. 
you know, all of the changes have to be signed off by the union. But that flexibility within that document is designed to support people who are doing their first couple of professional engagements to help them figure out what they need to be in there in terms of statutory entitlements, but also to provide them with that framework of what best practice looks like on the fringe and in small scale. There's similar documentation available for very low budget films and student films and that sort of thing. So whatever you're doing there will be a contract template available from the union. Um, If you're engaging people and you want to make sure that you're doing it properly, we can help you. That's really good to know, actually, that it's flexible as well, because I think a lot of people sometimes feel like, oh God, but I don't have any money. There's no way I can do an equity agreement. But actually, there's a lot of flexibility there at that lower end of the budget scale that you can work on. Yeah, I also think it's worth saying as well, you know, one of the questions that people who are starting in the industry ask me quite a lot is how much do they have to pay to be able to use a union agreement? You don't pay to use a union agreement. You just have to have our permission. So getting in touch with us and asking for our advice about what your contract should say, or indeed using the equity fringe agreement and getting it signed off by us doesn't cost you anything. There There isn't a charge involved in that. Equity minimum, we've mentioned it, is a term that's misused a lot. What does it actually mean? I get really, really wound up by this phrase. And the reason that I get really, really wound up by it is because it's the kind of phrase that means whatever you want it to mean in some ways, because nobody ever defines what they mean by equity minimum. They just say it's equity minimum. And what that does is it conveniently ignores the fact that equity minimum is different on different agreements. So the minimum rate of pay on the ITC contract, the Independent Theatre Council Ethical Manager Agreement, is different to the minimum rates of pay on the UK Theatre subsidised agreement. It's different again to the UK Theatre Commercial Theatre Agreement. It's different again to equity house agreements. And we haven't even started talking about recorded media. So what equity minimum means when people say it is they mean that somehow they've tagged it to the basic minimum rate of pay that the union negotiates through the process of collective bargaining with either an employer or a management association, but they aren't saying which one. And those figures can vary wildly because, as you'd expect, some of the minimums that I've negotiated on the fringe are lower than the minimum payments on the West End. But also equity minimum within those contracts also changes. So there are different minima on the West End agreement. There are different minima on the commercial theatre agreement, but nobody ever says which minimum they're talking about. And also, I think the other thing that we have to be quite clear on is that those minimum rates of pay are floors, not ceilings. They are rates of pay below which nobody should fall. And what I find frustrating in the extreme is when people think that, oh, I'm paying equity minimum. Like, well, you haven't said which one. And also, yeah, minimum, minimum, minimum. Like, throw me a bone (laughs) and stop expecting some sort of biscuit or whatever because you are paying the lowest rate of pay possible under a collectively bargained agreement like come back to me when you want to do better than that and and I also think the other thing that's, that's avoided within this conversation is that union agreements are about a lot more than rates of pay you know obviously that's important but the other thing that union agreements do is they set out you know what happens 
in terms of your working time? What happens in terms of your rest break? What happens if you get sick? What happens if you're on tour? What are your allowances when you're on tour? What happens with your pension scheme? What happens if you are pregnant? What happens in all kinds of different scenarios that could happen in a workplace and in the kind of workplaces our members work in? What happens under those scenarios? And it's always, always, always better than statutory minimum. And yet so many people seem to think that they can just whack the phrase equity minimum on a job posting and then that means something it doesn't mean anything so one of the things I suppose I'd, I'd really want to communicate to equity members is that when you see the phrase equity minimum interrogate that does that mean they're using an agreement Probably not, because if they were, they'd say they were using a union agreement. What minimum are they talking about and why haven't they stated the actual rate of pay? Why have they pegged themselves to a minimum that applies to a management association or to a house agreement, but not used the rest of the terms and conditions, the pro worker terms and conditions that that management association has, has signed themselves up to? So people need to kind of train themselves to interrogate castings and job breakdowns when they see those phrases to understand what it actually means. When people say equity minimum on its own, it's a meaningless phrase, but combined with the use of union agreements, being clear on what minimum that actually is, it means something. Um, but by itself, it could mean anything from, you know, a rate of pay for one hour at the national minimum wage right up to, you know, West End pay. It doesn't mm. mean anything. And if you're the artist on the flip side of that, where you're creating your own work, uh, presumably all that stuff like sick pay, hours, break times, all that kind of thing, that's all the stuff that you also need to be thinking about and putting into writing when people are working for you for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's all in the fringe agreement. You know, it's all there for people to understand best practice, as are things like grievance and disciplinary procedures. You know, because I think a lot of the time in this industry, we don't like to talk about what happens when it goes wrong. Yeah. But you have to have that kind of level of preparedness. And again, that's something that the union can support people with. You know, if somebody has a complaint about you about you as the employer, how do you handle that? Or if, you know, you have a complaint about them, how is that done in a way that's respectful and fair to all parties? What yeah. are people's rights in those circumstances? Because people do have rights. Those have to be respected. And that's why it's so important to have that contract at the beginning. Totally. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
That ties into something else that we wanted to ask you, Charlotte. If you're working with friends or if you work with a theatre company, for example, that grew out of a group of friends getting together and doing rehearsed readings, how do you maintain a professional relationship when you do have to have those conversations about wages or your rights at work? Would you have any advice for someone who is part of a professional engagement, but they also have a friendship with the person that they need to have a conversation with and they're thinking, oh, I don't, I don't really want to have this conversation? So that people know, Ruby Francis and I had a, had a brief exchange about this yesterday, and I'm going to say the same thing now as I said yesterday, which is there is an awkwardness around talking to your friends about money. There is an awkwardness around talking to your friends about, you know, any practices that they might be engaged in professionally that aren't right or need improvement or that you have a particular issue with. But I tell you what's more awkward What's more awkward is having to come to equity for mediation between the two of you because you've had a massive falling out because there wasn't a contract in place. That is far more awkward. And in my current role as the low pay, no pay organiser, I deal with so many instances of equity members who have got together on the kind of basis that we've been talking about. You know, someone's had an idea, they want to support each other, they want to help their friend with their idea. That idea has developed a life and, you know, there's external interest from other producers, there's venues that want to work with them, da 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 And then the lack of anything written down causes friendships to disintegrate because people then start having arguments about what was agreed at the time. In the, in the absence of anything written down saying what was agreed at the time, it's all about people's interpretation. So the person who had the idea might be like, no, I was super clear with you that this was mine. And I was just getting you in to help me. And the other person is like, wait, I thought I was an equal contributor to this. Look at all the work I've done. You haven't paid me. And now you want to treat me like some kind of waste product on your foot. Like what? So that conversation is much, 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 much worse than saying, look, okay, you you want me to work with you on your idea. I'm super happy to do that. But I want us to talk about what that professional relationship is going to going to be. And I want us to agree what that professional relationship is going to look like in the event that the work that we do takes off, in the event that there's interest, you know, in the event that you get the dream scenario of some, you know, really, really amazing producer picking it up and being like, hey, this is brilliant. Do you want a six week run in my theatre? Mm-hmm. You know, what happens in those scenarios how are people's rights protected and what's the basis of the relationship going forward? Because the other thing I've seen, right, is where people will get their mates in unpaid to do a bit of R&D. And then when they get some success, they're like, see ya, I'm going to go and hire other people now. Thanks for all your free work. I'm going off into the sunset with my Arts Council grant and the £500 a week pay is going to go to someone else. Way. So you have to have those agreements in place. And it's so, so, so much more respectful of each other, not just as professionals, but as friends to have that clarity to start with than it is to have to sit with me on Zoom arguing about the national minimum wage for your show. It is just so much easier. Please, please, please do it. And please understand that having those conversations about money and about the life of the work and what happens is separate to your friendship, but will also help maintain your friendship. Because if you're clear from the start, there won't be any nasty surprises later on. There won't be people feeling hurt and upset 
and as though like their friend has abandoned or betrayed them or whatever. So love yourself enough and love your friend enough to have that conversation. Yeah. I think as well, like we've talked about contracts, but sometimes it makes it sound like something really big and scary and like you need to be a business expert to understand what it is. But it really is about just getting into writing a basic rate of pay, some idea of the time commitment, things like that. It's not as scary as it sounds, I think. Even if all you've got is an email that says, so like me and Francis are going to work together. Francis has quite rightly said to me, Charlotte, I want to know what the deal is before we sign up. Even if all that happens is I send Francis an email saying, you've said you're going to work for me on this project. I want to be really clear that in the event that the show has a future life, you will have first refusal on your part. So, you know, it will be offered to you. And then if you don't want it, I'll ask it out or whatever. This is what the arrangement is with the copyright of the production. You know, who owns the work, who owns all the rest of it. This is how your contribution will be credited in the future. Because another thing people argue about is, you know, I work really hard on this R&D. I gave them loads and loads and loads of ideas that they've taken off and used and not once is my name mentioned. So, you know, as an acknowledgement, thank Francis of all the work that you've done. I'm going to say that the show was written by me and devising or, you know, however you want to phrase it, and devised by Francis. Um, And that's going to be your acknowledgement of the work that you've put in. So having those things in place is super important, even if it's just a kind of email exchange where you say, yeah, this is how it's going to be. And Francis replies saying, great, I accept. Like that is a form of a contract. It doesn't have to be as detailed as, you know, a written document that everybody signs and is drawn up by a lawyer, blah, 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 blah. I mean, good if it is, but who's got the money to pay for legal advice to draw up that kind of agreement? So do it on that basis and make sure that those things are clear from the start. With the fringe agreement then, Charlotte, there's a template there that you can look at, but if you want to use it, contact the union. Thank you. So one of the things uh, we wanted to talk about today as well was profit shares, because again, it's a phrase that gets used a lot and it's something that we might consider when uh, sort of working in that collaborative way with friends when first starting out. But it's again, a phrase that gets used and misused a lot. So what is a profit share? Well, there's many different answers to that depending on who you ask. And there are many different answers to that, depending on the intention of the people who are putting the profit share together. So as with most things around this, I think that the main issue we have with the idea of a profit share is that it means different things to different people. And when we talk about profit share, we all do so with our own personal ideas of what we mean when we say those two words. Now, there are examples of genuine profit shares. A genuine profit share would be where me, Ruby and Francis, we've come up with this idea for a show. We're going to work on it together. It's a genuine collaboration between the three of us. Nobody is in, is particularly in charge or making the decision decisions. We're all doing that equally. We have equal share in the risk. So, you know, all of us have fronted up the cash to hire the venue and do whatever else we need to do. And then at the end of the run, we all know how much has been spent. We all know how much has been received in ticket money. And we all get an equal share of that amount. That's a profit share. What a profit share is not is a label people can bung on a contract to avoid statutory obligations. And that's where I see it most often. What I see most often is people deciding either that they can't pay somebody or they don't want to pay somebody. So they're saying it's a profit share 
which is not an actual status for employment rights purposes. You know, just because you are operating on a profit share model doesn't mean that people are not still entitled to the national minimum wage. And far too often, people say it's a profit share. And what they mean is that they're exploiting you because they have all the power. They are making all the decisions. They are the people that are in control of what happens, the money, the income, the expenditure. You don't get to know any of it. You don't make any decisions about any of it. And you're left with your 200 quid after a month's worth of work if you're lucky. And then somehow that's a brilliant profit share when all the credit, all of the accolades, the majority of the cash and all of the decisions lay with this other person. That's not an equal partnership and that's not a genuine profit share. That's exploitation. There are all sorts of reasons why people choose to do that. But if you are being asked to do a profit share, you really need to ask yourself whether or not you are actually a worker and therefore entitled to at least the national minimum wage, holiday pay and all the rest of it. And chances are, nine times out of ten, you should be. And profit share is a label that's being used to deny you your statutory rights. So if it's a profit share, it's not just about the share of pay, it's about the share of kind of control and responsibilities, the creative share, if you like. At its heart, this is a question of worker status. It's a question of how you should be categorised for the purposes of employment rights. And the tests around whether or not you're a worker are not done on the basis of the label that whoever is hiring you wants to slap on the contract. It's done based on a series of tests as to the reality of the job. That includes things like how much control the person who's hiring you has. It includes things like mutuality of obligation and it includes things like personal service. We've covered all of that in a previous podcast. There's various um, equity zooms in on all of that stuff as well. So I won't go over it again here. But the conclusion to that part is that if you have any doubts or concerns at all about it, you should contact the union. And you should also remember that just because you might have signed a contract that says you waive your right to national minimum wage and you understand that you're working on a profit share doesn't mean that you've lost that right because the national minimum wage is not a right that you can sign away. It still applies and you can still enforce it after the event if you want to do so. Just contact yeah. the union. It all goes back really to like what we were first saying that if you are a group of friends doing something and it is truly collaborative, then do what you want. It's about your status. It's about who's got the control creatively as much as practically. But I also think a lot of the time, and this is going to sound, I don't know, this is going to probably sound counter to a lot of the stuff that a union official should say, really. But in all of the conversations I have with people about work in this industry and about what exploitation feels like and what exploitation is, the common theme is that there are a number of people who will quite happily do a bogus profit share if they feel there's something in it for them. You know, maybe it's a play they love, maybe it's a thing that they've always wanted to do, blah, 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 blah. But the minute they start not liking it is when they feel that something's not as they were promised it would be. So if there is an openness about what's happening with the accounting and why the pay is so low, if they feel like they're being exploited rather than they're having a good time and it's a project that they're interested in. And so much of this is about how we treat people when they're at work, you know, how we treat people with dignity, irrespective of the level of the industry that we might be working in or the type of project we're doing. So much of it comes down to a basic, really, really basic principle of treating people with respect. And too often... Producers don't do that. And it's not always out of malice. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. But when you're employing people, you have a responsibility to understand how to treat them well, or at least how to treat them fairly. 
and far too many people don't. And it's kind of not excusable, but understandable why an artist might not realise that they're exploiting their friends or their peers because we see it's almost normalised in our industry. Oh, but it's exposure. Oh, but it, the director's really good and that might lead to further opportunities. So we do, we become normalised to it. But I think it producers might do it, but let's respect our friends. Like let's respect ourselves and start as we mean to go on. Really. If we respect our friends and pay each other and treat each other with respect, that's got to be a good starting point for trying to get that all the way up the industry. Really. Totally. And I also think whenever people say to me, Oh, you know, I've done this work because it's, it's a brilliant opportunity. I always think, well, exactly who is it a brilliant opportunity for? Is it really a brilliant opportunity for you? Or is it a brilliant opportunity for this person to exploit you and get six weeks of free labour out of you because you've decided that this is good? Um, so who who is the opportunity really for? McDonald's like, oh, would be the way we're saying the same thing. Get yeah. away with telling people, oh, there's a great opportunity. Oh, it, it's really good exposure. Like, well, good luck paying your rent with exposure. Like, they, they want money. Like, it's also about how you feel about your own work. Your skills have value. I mean, there is there is a thing where you don't get paid to do theatre and that's called Amdram. And that's not about how good the people are in it. It's just you're a professional. So I mean, there are all sorts of circumstances why people might choose to work for free. And it's not for the uni to have the kind of sniffy, oh, that's bad attitude about it. The point that I'm trying to make is that if you are going to do so, do so because you understand what it is and it's right for you, not just because you've allowed somebody else to tell you that it's a brilliant opportunity. Like make sure that it actually is a brilliant opportunity for you. Make sure that you're happy with the terms that you're working under because you are genuinely happy with them, not just because the person who doesn't want to pay you has told you that you should be happy with them. That's the crucial difference. Like, because if I come to you, Francis, and say, I'm going to hire you for my incredible play, I can't pay you, it's a brilliant opportunity. If I was you, my first question would be like, yes, it is a brilliant opportunity for you to have me working for you unpaid for three weeks. But where exactly is the brilliant opportunity for me? And only you will know the answer to that. You know, and and we've talked about this on the committee before. You know, yes, people have worked for free because it was with a director that they, you know, that they wanted to work with. People have worked for free because they loved the text. Fine. But make sure you understand what you're getting out of it, not what other people are telling you you're getting out of it, because those two things might not always be the same. And there's a great little thing that we touched on there, Charlotte, as well. And it's something we could talk about for ages and we probably don't have time to talk about. But just that idea of a group of people have come together. One of them's a writer. One of them's a director. They all know each other. They've all agreed they'll do this thing for free. They're happy to do it. They can do it for free at the minute. But then that piece of work takes off, turns into something else that everyone knows and recognises and loves. The same people aren't involved in it, which isn't a problem necessarily as and of itself. But I mean, anybody writes anything, they get a wee acknowledgements page at the front. Morally, I think, well, if you haven't acknowledged those people in a few sentences who helped give birth to the thing, because you couldn't have done it on your own, you needed 10 people. If you're not even just going to mention their name to say thank you for doing the reading or the profit share or whatever, morally, to me, there's something wrong with that. 
some people sign up to things and, and they've no problem knowing that, look, I'll get experience out of this. And if it becomes something brilliant, I might get a part, I might not. That's the way it goes. But for the people who end up making a lot of money out of it, if you're not even acknowledging those other people who helped you at the very beginning by doing something for free or by doing something for very little morally, I think, well, that that's just wrong. I mean, I agree. If you have catapulted yourself to success thanks to the free labour of your friends and your fellow professionals. And in the moment of your success, you can't even find a couple of lines to say thank you to the people without whose free work you would not be where you are, then that's pretty repugnant. And again, it comes back to the question of dignity, doesn't it? And kindness and treating each other with respect and acknowledging the help and support you've had on your way. You know, that doesn't mean that in everything we do, we have to be like, I would like to thank my primary school teacher for (laughs) being a love of drama. I would like to thank the NHS for always being there in my time of need. But it does just mean that it's important to reflect on and acknowledge those moments of critical support that were integral to you having the success that you've had, I think. And I think, Francis, you're right. Like when people turn their ideas and their projects into hugely, hugely successful endeavours, like good on them, brilliant, amazing. But taking that moment to acknowledge the people who helped you get there is really, really important. Yeah. So one of the things we wanted to touch on um, is funding. You know, we're talking about making your own work. We're talking about, okay, you're now in control of this project and people are your workers. You need to be paying them, even if it's at the national minimum wage. How can people find that funding? Um, Is there anything equity do to kind of offer up support for new companies or can guide them in the directions of organisations that do? We don't because we're not a funder. And what I would say is that there is a good breakdown of other sources of funding on the Arts Council website, and that should be a really good first port of call for people. There are pots of money everywhere. And this sounds really, really flippant. And I know know, there'll be people listening to this who are like, what is she talking about? There is no cash. But there are grant-making organisations. There are philanthropic endeavours from big corporations. The difficulty is finding them and matching your project to the kind of thing that they want to fund. And I think that other sources of funding website is a really, really good place to start. But also, One of the things that's great about this industry is the way that everybody is so generous with their knowledge. And I see things on Twitter all the time, like I am looking for funding, what kind of pots exist that will help me. And instead of people, you know, in other sectors, you might get, uh, I'm not telling her that this is my supply of cash. You get people who are like, oh, well, I applied to these people and it was really easy and they gave me £3,000 and you should apply too. So always like ask your community, ask the wider industry, ask the people you know where their money has come from. But I think, you know, it's important to reflect on and to think about the kind of the political reasons why finding money in the arts is so hard. Right. Because if you look around the rest of the European Union, the average spend on arts and culture is 0.5 percent of GDP. In the UK, the average spend on arts and culture is 0.3 percent of GDP. So one of our big problems around funding is a structural issue around the lack of it. And what that means in terms of its availability and how how competitive Arts Council and other sources of funding are, it's because there's not enough of it. And one of Equity's main priorities is to 
get that level of funding increased so that that kind of vaguely Hunger Games style competition that sometimes exists over funding is minimised and more people have more opportunity to access the money that they need to make their work and pay people properly. Because it's really hard. You know, you've got this idea, you want to do this work, you believe in it, you feel that it's good, you can't get any cash. You know, the number of people that I've met who have then resorted to taking out a 10 grand Barclay card so that they can pay people and they can do all of this. You shouldn't have to do that. So there is that kind of structural question around, you know, how do we get better access to funding for everybody so that working in the arts and getting started in the arts doesn't mean a mountain of debt or just not being able to because you couldn't get any funding. That has been a long-standing campaign of equities and it will continue to be so. And people would do well to support us in that because the more money there is, the easier this industry becomes. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Yeah, thank you. You are very welcome. I suppose I should say as well, if people want any more information to get in touch with equity. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if people want to talk about contracts or have got questions on worker status or anything like that, get in touch with the yeah. union. Um, you can find me on Twitter at EquityLPNP. And if I can't help you, I'll point you in the direction of somebody who can. Thank you very much, Charlotte. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Young Members Podcast. Made by the Equity Young Members Committee. Follow us at Equity YMC. See you next time. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.